We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome back to Hardline. We heard from Chris Grant on the Republican side. Now we're going to hear from a gentleman named Jack O'Donnell who uh, has worked with President Clinton, uh, Governors uh, Spitzer, Patterson, you name it. Uh, very influential. Uh, wrote, wrote a book in 2013 uh, called Bitten by the Tiger that you can get on Amazon, which, by the way, if there is, when it, when it comes to New York politics, guys like me, conservatives, always talk about Albany is so corrupt and it's so, we know nothing of the corruption. Chicago on steroids doesn't talk Tammy about, Hall. you know, reconstruction, New York State, New York City. Just this is this was a crazy, crazy time. Uh, but that book talks about uh, Governor, uh, one of the first impeached governors. And really, if you took uh, Governor Saltzer today in 2019, he's not so bad of a guy. Uh, he's not at all. He's uh, He comes to this as a reformer, as a guy who does a lot of sort of good work, and then actually challenges Tammany Hall, challenges the power structure, and gets punished for it. If you be- if you believe that big oil and big pharma and, and the NRA were the worst things in the world, what elected official would actually do something about that publicly? It's one thing to do it behind the scenes, but to step up and say, all of you here are the, the ones that are, you know, corrupting and influencing. That really is something that I don't think a modern politician would ever consider. No, I don't think we've seen anything like this, certainly in the 100 years uh, or so since then, right? It's a tumultuous time with the progressive era and and politics changing and the, the kind of money that's out there with Wall Street at the time. And New York really is booming, right? It's bigger than uh, every other state by two or three to one and has enormous political power. And people are watching these folks and, and Salser challenges them. Yeah, to keep in this vein, because I'm fascinated by machine politics, uh, do you think he saw the writing on the wall? I mean, one of the one of the stories we tell about why the parties actually embraced some of the progressive reforms was that people were so fed up with the stories of corruption that they were hearing that if the parties themselves didn't get behind change, something else was going to come in to fill the vacuum because they had a total crisis of confidence in the electorate. So do you think he was just kind of trying to ride that wave or were there other motivations involved? Well, there's certainly really kind of two ways to look at him, right? And one is that as a guy who comes out of Tammany Hall, he he sees that and really embraces reform and tries to be different. Uh, Being politics, there's also a more cynical way to look at this. Uh, He watched uh, a guy named Woodrow Wilson from uh, across the river go in two years from President Princeton to President of the United States uh, and does some of that by taking on the bosses in New Jersey. Uh, I also believe that William um, Randolph Hearst is kind of whispering in Sulster's ear. They become allies. They were friends. Hearst hates Tammany Hall for his own political reasons. Tammany's taken him down. There's some really sort of fascinating uh, interplay there. And, it, and it's, it's such a it's described, you know, pre-World War One New York. 
uh, when you look at how many, especially, you know, during the Civil War, so many immigrants came to New York were immediately conscripted and brought into the battle, Irish brigades, all that. So now we have this lead up to, you know, it was really, you want to talk about fake news in the Trump era. We went to war in the Spanish-American War because newspapers were telling stories on a daily basis of the corruption and the abuse that were going on. And most of these, there wasn't a whole lot of facts behind it. It was, we have to go to the Dominican Republic. We have to go to Cuba. This is a necessity. And it was almost used as well. You know, there's a lot of bad blood since the Civil War. Let's bring America together and do that. Uh, but it, it was almost the Wild West of politics in that era. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you see the immigrants in the Sulcer story. Uh, he's a German immigrant. His family is. And, you know, there are waves of these folks coming in. Um, 1912, when he runs for governor, is very divisive. You've got uh, Theodore Roosevelt running against the Republican Party, and his progressive or Bull Moose Party nominates a guy named Oscar Strauss, who happens to be Jewish, been a member of Roosevelt's cabinet. His family was involved in uh, uh, Macy's and had a lot of money. And so Tammany Hall, who always was a little soft on Sulcer, uh, decides, you know, he's got a lot of support. He had been a, a, a huge advocate um, for Jewish Americans with the Russia Treaty. There's all this other stuff there and, and really stands up for them. But talk about fake news. Researching this book, right? I don't know. There's something like 17 daily newspapers just time. in English in New right. York City. And you look at one, and it's not just that we've got opposing points of view from one to the other. The, the the facts are exactly opposite for the same thing on the same day. You can get 10 different versions. Isn't that something? And, and we talked today about, you know, uh, the pundits come in and they put their tilt on it. But, you know, where did you get your news then? If a breaking story happened, it was a newsboy with a special edition. And even that was dated. There was nothing until radio. There was really nothing to get up to the minute information uh, just a crazy time. Great book. Bitten by the Tiger. It's on Amazon. Uh, and it was a 2013 release. And you can pick it up. And uh, excellent job on that. Thank yeah. you. Uh, to get to, uh, to our topic, yeah, sorry about the, the interlude there on machine politics and, uh, and uh, party papers. But, um, you know, we, we had uh, Chris on here earlier talking about his business. What do you think some of the biggest misconceptions are about, about what you have done? I understand now you're, you're primarily a lobbyist, but... Previously, when you were more of a political consultant, what are some of the things that people think about that business that aren't necessarily true? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I do think, uh, and I think Chris touched on some of this earlier, is why we do what we do, right? There are other ways uh, to make more money and do it much easier than being a political consultant or working on political campaigns. It is hard work. It takes a lot of time. Um, there are a couple people at the top uh, who may make some money. Uh, we see some of that in Roger Stone and some of this stuff coming out here. Uh, but a lot of folks take risks. Uh, you don't necessarily have a job uh, uh, at the end of November if your candidate doesn't win, and sometimes even if they do. Uh, but I think you really do this or you, you get into this because you believe in something. Look, I grew up in western New York at a time when everything was awful. Uh, everybody went from my high school left town. Um, and so I sort of got into this to kind of challenge the status quo and, and work for candidates who were willing to try to change things. And things are starting to get better. We still have a lot of ways to go. But I think a lot of us get involved in this because we believe. 
Yeah, I think that you know the misconception is that everyone's Roger Stone and we all have a Nixon tattoo, uh, but it's it's hard work. It's in the trenches, and you know I was on that career path at one point, and I just decided it was not for me. When uh, for me it was the timeline. It was like I need this yesterday. Um, go ahead and, and work on this now. And so you know the the policy memo or the brief you've been working on, the dynamics of the campaign shift, and suddenly you're into an entirely different area, and what you just worked on, spent hours of your life on goes into a circular file or a black hole. I can't tell which. Uh, and so, you know, could you talk just a little bit about the, the speed with which things happen? Uh, sure. And, and in this 24-second uh, uh, news cycle, it's gotten even harder, right? You're, you're, you can plan out a campaign, and one of the hardest things is trying to stick to that plan. Uh, because a tweet happens or, or something happens uh, uh, across the world that impacts everything, and you've got to change overnight. Um, so a lot of this is 2 a.m. trying to redo something that you thought was done a week ago. And there's a lot of that and, and a lot of late nights, a lot of early mornings, and you're, you're putting a lot of trust in, in other people. You know, coming up in politics uh, from Western New York and then going statewide, it really, to me, it it opens up the door for you to work almost anywhere in the country. I mean, there's West Virginia in New York State, there's Kentucky, there's Chicago, there's obviously New York City. You've got deep blue areas, you've got crimson red areas. But if you have statewide success in across those areas, there's really no other place that you can't work. You get a call from California, get a call from from Oregon. Guess what? I've dealt with this. I've cut my teeth across this entire state. This is pretty much this is the amalgam of America. Well, that's that's absolutely true. And then to take it a step further. Buffalo, Western New York has a reputation among people in the political world for some of the toughest, hardest hitting, nastiest, um, most unpredictable politics. And so people see you if you can succeed here and survive Western New York politics, you're going to do well other places. I mean, we had a, a, you know, Jimmy Griffin. We had a, a, a council member in here that was talking about the time Jimmy Griffin put his hands on him. <laughs> I mean, that would never happen today, where a mayor gets in a physical altercation with a member of the common council. But it is a little bit, uh, you know, it's funny how Buffalo is affected by New York. Almost, it seems like a five-year gap. Something happens in New York, it affects us five years later. But in this case, you know, there was that old-school Buffalo political way of doing things that, you know, I, I just don't think that flies in Rochester. It doesn't fly in, in Syracuse. There's that blue collar rust belt mentality, the chip on our shoulder. It's something shared by Democrats and Republicans. Uh, absolutely. That, that it is that blue collar work ethic, right? It's the different uh, uh, ethnic groups that we have here who have been, some of whom battled each other for 70 years, you know, even when times were good in Western New York. And, you know, you'll see things where people say to you, oh, I don't like you because uh, your grandfather did this 40 years ago and you're still fighting those fights. It's tribal. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Right. Now, tell me, at what point when you get involved now, you've worked with senators and presidents and, and governors and, you know, you, you know, nothing shocks you at this point in your career. At what point when you are, uh, for example, when you take something that is built to be controversial in the very beginning, I go back to Senator Schumer and the Iran deal. You know, whether you, you agree or disagree with the Iran deal, the way that Senator Schumer handled that was about skill level seven on a scale of one to four on exactly how to play it perfectly. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to keep people happy 
that are my base, and I'm going to be as critical as I can without upsetting the other side. Senator Schumer, one of the most gifted of the modern politics on on either side, but when you take something that's automatically set up to be a minefield, the Green New Deal is set up to be a minefield, it's set up to be a gotcha trap, and you're consulting an elected official, it's a totally different approach than when you're consulting a candidate. There's a lot more room for error when you're not, you know, held to account, right? Uh, absolutely. Look, uh, governing is hard, right? Political campaigns are hard, but not quite as hard because your decisions don't necessarily matter the same way. Uh, but again, this goes back to one of those maybe myths around what political consultants do. No matter how controversial an issue, I would always start with what is my candidate belief? Right. What is the most important thing to them? And and look, maybe sometimes there are things they don't know enough about and you're helping educate them and you can point them in a direction. But you really start with what they believe. And sometimes that's not good politics. Right. It may be they're for a project that is not popular in that district or they're against a, po- a project that is. And, and that can be hard. But you've got to make that part of your plan and try to turn it into one of your strengths. I, I think especially in Western New York, but my experience across the country is that if, if you have a deep-seated belief in something and you're willing to sit down and talk to people, right, go door to door, come on shows like this and face the music, most people, even if they're angry at you, are going to respect you for that, right? Um, a lot of the conversations around Trump and, and his appeal to people was that he was authentic. And that goes to actually saying what you believe on these things. So we always start with telling our candidates, let's start there. Well, what do you do today in 2019? It doesn't matter what your candidate believes. It doesn't matter what your boss believes or even the way that they legislate, because no one's going to tell you that Governor Northam is a racist. The, his voting record for the, any time in his, in his professional life has been extremely progressive. Nobody would ever question that he uh, you know, had any sort of, of hatred in his heart. But now something shows up when he's 17 years old, 26 years old, in the case of the attorney general. You know, the, these are not things that are, are stymieing up a candidate or an elected official that really they could have controlled in their adult life. You make a, we made bad decisions and we were able to overcome those bad decisions by our character and by judges by our fruits. You can't really say that anymore when, when someone's being in, you know, getting caught for something they did when they were 21 years old. Well, I, I, I think he would be in a very different position if he had handled this right in the beginning. Uh, right. Because, you know, just like you're saying, this is what's in my heart. This is what my voting record is. This is, you know, some friends who will vouch for me. And this is what I've done. And this is what I'm going to do to make it up to you. And this is why I think what I did was wrong. Instead, he said, oh, it wasn't me. And then maybe it was and it was someone else. And, you know, I, I think he really approached this thing wrong. And in this Again, in this vicious cycle, once that starts, it's really hard to get out of it. You've only got one first chance here, and he totally blew his first chance and his second chance, and and that's why this has devolved so much. So what do you advise, uh, not him in particular, but if you had a, a person that you worked for in a similar situation, is it if you're the chance to unpack something is in the very few hours before you go to the media get everything down the way we're going to do this because once you do it on your own or or you go off script 
we're we're in a world of hurt. And and you see that, right? I mean, you see that exactly in this example. If he had if he had unpacked that, right, and started with I was 26. I didn't know. I was busy studying, and I grew up in this culture, and I now see how dressing in blackface or standing with people in KKK robes is offensive to people. I've learned from that, right? I grew up in a different way, and I'm trying to be in politics to change that, right? And these are the three things I've already done, and these are the four other things I've done or I intend to do, and this is how I know why it hurts, and, and I am sorry. Yeah, following from that, can we talk just a little bit about sort of the science of campaigns? Um, we've known for a long time on the academic side that there's a right way to issue an apology and there's definitely a wrong way. And we've had enough examples of this that we can study this and we can see, oh, look, they got away with it. You know, we can think about circumstances and the like. They really fell down on their face here. Um, what are some of the tactics that campaigns use that people look at and they go, oh, I don't like that. That, that seems wrong but actually might be good for them, might be informing them, might be sort of doing the work of politics that they need to do. So what are some of those things that, that are used uh, in, in your experience? The, the sort of things that are used that people don't like? I mean, yeah. it starts with negative campaigns, right? Everyone you talk to says, I hate negative campaigns. Oh, I wish they wouldn't do them. But in a lot of experiences, we've got evidence, right? And sometimes empirical evidence that they work, right? People remember them differently. I also think that it's easy to remember those sides of it, right? You remember the the really hit ad. You don't remember as much the ad from the candidate telling you about her education plan or her, um, you know, why she's going to crack down on texting while driving to protect children. But you incorporate some of those as your feelings about her as a candidate. And, you know, it's just less visceral, but it becomes part of the overall plan. And I do think anyone who's just running on a negative ad just running against someone because the other person is bad, they don't win that often. We're going to take a break. We come back more hard line. Uh, we've got Jack O'Donnell in studio. We're talking uh, with uh, Dr. Jacob Naheisel from the University of Buffalo. We'll take your calls, 803-0930 on the Republican line, 644-9875 on the Democratic line, and we'll be back after news. It's Hardline. Welcome back to uh, Hardline. We've got uh, Jack O'Donnell in studio. We've got Dr. Jacob Nyheisel here. And we're talking a little bit about the politics of impeachment. And uh, during the break, we talked about uh, your book in 2013 on Amazon, Bitten by the Tiger, which is about the first impeachment of a New York state governor in uh, William Sulzer. And the politics of impeachment, you know, you worked for Clinton right now. There's a lot of people that want to impeach Trump. This it's never going to change. We like to, we, there are people that want to impeach Obama. Right. Uh, you know, it's full circle. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there are always articles of impeachment floating around out there. Um, I guess, what does it take for that to be a realistic kind of challenge? And you know, do you see that being something that the Democrats currently are going to to go for? Or and what are some of the pitfalls involved in that? Well, you certainly see the further out to the left you go, right? And the more anger you see at Donald Trump, the more you hear these folks talking about impeachment. And like you said, there have been members of Congress who have done this. Um, my, you know, my research on William Sulzer, and you look at uh, Bill Clinton, you look at a number of these other factors over the years, and we see that voters overwhelmingly reject impeachment as a political tool. 
Now, that means that if, uh, at least it means to me, if the Democratic Party as a whole and Nancy Pelosi start talking about impeachment hearings because we, we don't like Trump or we don't like some of his policies or we don't like what he says about women, um, that the party is going to pay a price for that. Um, and especially when you look at where the House of Representatives is, right? Um, uh, the Democrats won back the House not by winning a bunch of left-leaning districts that they already held for 20 years. They won by winning in the suburbs and converting folks over, not talking about Trump war impeachment, but talking about ways to Im- improve their lives. Uh, and, and I think that's really important for elected officials to remember and not get caught in some of these partisan traps. Well, it, it certainly was a trap for Clinton. Uh, right. where the Republicans thought, this is a wounded guy, this is going to help us. And then, you know, you end up losing a House Speaker, a second House Speaker. You end up losing, you know, people in your own party because you set, artificially set a line. And the American public looked at the economy. You know, so there are many people in the Trump camp that think this is actually the best thing for 2020 is for them to try articles of impeachment in the House. Look, the Democratic Party often gets lost in talking about issues that are important to some groups in that party. And I'm not trying to take away from how important those things are to people. Uh, But as a whole, most people want to hear, like you said, about the economy. How does this affect me? Can I send my kids to school? Are the schools worth sending my kids to? Right? Do I have a job? Am I going to have a job tomorrow? And those things are much more important for the party to talk about. I agree with the Trump folks. Uh, impeachment would be good for him, right? They may, made Bill Clinton a hero. Yeah, that's really the, the lesson from 1998. I think some of this hinges on the, the ambiguity of what uh, it means to impeach a president in the sense that, you know, there are, are some things laid out in the Constitution. One's going to be, you know, bribery, treason. Those are pretty well set in terms of federal law. We know what bribery looks like. We know what treason looks like. And then there's the high crimes and misdemeanors, which at the time was contentious. And to this day, I'm not sure anyone really knows what it is. I mean, how, how has that traditionally been interpreted? Um, yeah, I, and it really kind of means what the you know what the Senate uh, impeachment committee thinks it means, right? Um, so in 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 William Solzer's case, he gets impeached. He he had uh, signed some things about his campaign, and um, he had taken a lot of money, um, some for personal use. Um, there were some real serious questions there that are relevant today. Can you impeach someone for what happened before they were elected? Right. Does it have to be something that happens while you're in office in New York uh, uh, in 1913? They found that it was um, a, a, a portico to office. And so it was relevant and they were able to impeach him. Uh, the other interesting thing is three months later, he was reelected. He was elected to the assembly and goes back to Albany a couple months later because and Tammany Hall loses a bunch of offices for a few years and, and pays a high political price because voters don't like that. They want to vote. And, you know, when you look at uh, your career and you, you know, I think there's a uh, when when it comes to consultants, when it comes to operatives, whatever the word that we want to use to call someone who's behind someone running for office, there's a tendency to believe that, you know, that these are uh, that you're either too aggressive or you're just a, a believer and that the candidate is more important than the ideology, that the principles don't exist because you know, this is your guy or girl, this is your person, this person has to win. But how many times in your own career have you made principled decisions in, I mean, I guess it comes with how successful you are. In the beginning, if you're trying to just, you know, cut your way into an industry, you might have to take people that you hold your nose. 
But at this level of your career, you know, you're you're not going to represent someone that you find politically, ideologically repugnant. Uh, absolutely not. And I, I totally reject that premise. Right. I, I even if someone is a sure winner, if I don't believe in them, if I don't feel like I can go tell my mother and tell my kids I worked for them, I, I won't do that. And I wouldn't do that when I was scraping by. Um, it's sort of hard to do. But again, it came down for me to do I really believe this person's going to make my hometown better. Right. And that can be hard to do. And then sometimes, no matter what you believe, you could be disappointed. Uh, I did work for Elliot Spitzer. I did work for Alan Hevesy. Uh, I never saw some of the bad things that they both uh, apparently did and wasn't in my you know, interaction with them. And, and I wouldn't have worked for them if I had known. But I didn't know. Well, I mean, and the other thing, too, is that when you look at a guy like Bernie Sanders, you know, there's it's you know, everyone was against the superdelegate when it came to the primaries in, in 2016. But what happens when you don't have a superdelegate? Now you're in a position where you might be lock and step with the beliefs of Bernie Sanders, but he's at 77. I mean, you know, the, the whole pride of progressive America is how young and optimistic and hopeful. There's a lot of people that are carrying the Bernie Sanders torch that don't have the package of Bernie Sanders. And that might be more electable than an old white guy, to be honest. Joe Biden might be the great moderate, but the package of Joe Biden. So even though you might believe in a candidate, if their chances of hurting the party or hurting the, you know, having a conservative or Republican representing, that's got to offset the principles sometimes, too. Well, that that also plays into the sort of cyclical nature of politics here, right? The superdelegates come into being because Democrats nominate uh, George McGovern in 1972. It's a debacle. Um, and the party leaders, whether those are members of Congress, former presidents, party chairs, say, well, we, you know, we can't let this get away from us again, right? And so it goes one way and it'll go back the other until there's another debacle, right? Hopefully that's not... In 2020, but it may happen. Have you worked for a Republican, or would you ever consider working for someone that is not of your political party? Uh, absolutely. I you look. I'm a Democrat. I believe in a lot of things, but at the end of the day, I'm also a Buffalo Democrat. I'm a, a somewhat uh, moderate Democrat, and so that has to balance. More often, I found myself working with Republicans on sort of issue-based campaigns, like how do you. Uh, how do you drive resources to upstate New York, uh, you know, ballot initiatives and, and things like that. But I think the most important thing is what you're trying to accomplish, not just one one party or sort of what that means today. Let me ask you, what do you make of just Western New York in the sense that it's so odd to me that as rural, when you go to like party chairman in the rural counties, those guys are far left. And when you go to the inner city of Republican chairman, those guys are far right. And it's like the moderates, it's such a weird dynamic. You would think that you would get a far left political, you know, progressive liberal ideologue in the city. But you tend to have more moderate, the larger the county populations are, the Democrats tend to be more central. The more rural that they are, they're like off the spectrum. I mean, it's it's almost the People's Republic in some of those rural counties. And then you go to the Republican side. And it's like the Manhattan GOP guy, it, you know, is just far off the spectrum on the right. Well, I think, look, I've been to all 62 counties. I've met most of these chairs or, or previous chairs over the years. I've worked with some of them. Uh, I respect a lot of them. 
Uh, but in a lot of ways, we see maybe a direct proportion between electability and your ability to win and how far out ideologically you can be. In other words, if you're the Democratic chairman in Hamilton County uh, and you can't even uh, elect somebody to, I don't know, uh, town board, uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking this through and it's easy to be out there waving the flag. Whoever wants the job. You take anybody you can get. And when you're a Republican in, uh, you know, the Bronx, guess what? You know, you can Same thing, right? hang on, on whatever, uh, you know, a political social issue you want. Dovetailing on that, we talked just a little bit about the two-stage nature of American politics, the primary and then the general election. Uh, I have in the back of my mind here the, the, the Mitt Romney etch-a-sketch moment. And then more locally, we had Nate McMurray, who had to pivot from looking for some DCCC money to, gosh, I got to run an R plus, what, 11 district in, in New York 27. When you're you know advising that person, how do you make that transition between here's the candidate uh, here in this context, and we have a pool of people who are going to be voting the primaries who are very different ideologically than that median voter I want to go after later. Well, I, I, and I think the best way to do that is, any way I approach a campaign is to look at election day, right? Where do I need to be on November 7th? How many votes do I need to get? Where are they coming from? And, and work that backwards. Same thing in the primary. And you make some decisions about what issues are going to matter, Right. There is the danger of going too far one way or, or the other, but you've got to be smart about it. And it's also a lot. You know, I talk to candidates. One of, one of the best things when you talk about polling or focus groups or you, you look at folks um, is when they can say um, there's no Democratic way to do this, no Republican way. There's just a smart way to collect trash or, uh, you know, invest in infrastructure or whatever that is. And try to transcend some of those traps. Um, I feel like folks who are just so caught in being a Democrat or so caught in, look, you're running for the 29th Congressional District or you're running for the 14th Senate District. What does that mean to you? Right. And focus a little bit on that. And there are going to be things in that that will appeal to Democrats, you know, and help you win a primary and things in that that will appeal to you to win the whole district. Do if you, you do it right. Do you, do you find in, in 2019 that you almost have to have really awkward, uncomfortable conversations with candidates today that you never dreamed of in the in the 90s? Uh, you know what? What was embarrassing in 92? I mean, you would never be a candidate. Gary Hart. You know, my the the the, the boat was monkey business. This is unbelievable. You know, but today you're talking about whether or not someone's photographed themselves or what conversations they've had or you know a high school yearbook to uh, who even has access to that it, the vetting you would almost have to think that today if you're 19 years old you're probably disqualified for any elected office just based on being a 19 year old kid well look i i don't want anyone looking at my yearbook or uh, look at what i did from 19 to 26 but I, I do think, um, as we talked about earlier, there's ways to talk about those things, right? Uh, uh, George W. Bush, I was young and wild when I was young and wild. Um, and there's a way to approach some of this. And um, yes, it's changed a little because of social media and because of the access to those things. But something that you did wrong in, in 1994 is probably something that's still not going to look that good today. And you have to be prepared for that, and you need to, to work it out, and you need to find ways to move on from it. Yeah, I think the argument of when in Rome is not good for blackface. Yes, you, I you, would you concur can't. with that. So there's a litmus test as far as what you can say I follow the crowd to do. You know, follow the crowd, I smoked a joint, follow the crowd, burned a cross. 
<laughs> Hold on. Tap the brakes there. That might not be what we're ready for today in 2019. Hey, we're looking at uh, recreational marijuana in New York, so you're only half right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You got it. All right, so let's uh, take a quick break. We come back. More hardline, more tough questions. And uh, we'll we'll go to the calls. 803-0930, Republican line, 644-9875. On the Democratic line, it's hardline after this. Welcome back to hardline. We've got uh, we've got a call. Let's go to a couple calls, actually. Let's go to Tom in Buffalo on the Democratic line. Tom, uh, you're on hardline. Go ahead. Hi, folks. Um, a, a question. It doesn't matter what side you are as, as an operative. How has things changed for operatives now that facts don't seem to matter? And can we not use the word issue or what's the other word that was used earlier? I forget. Can we just say that Chris Collins is under felony indictment? I mean, that's that's a fair question. I mean, instead of instead of getting into the minutia of well, innocent till proven guilty, I'll let what, just go right at it. And this is what we're going to use to go after this candidate. The guy. I mean, what more do you want? A person puts handcuffs on you, and the FBI. That's all, this should be a slam dunk for any political party. Look, Thank you, you should be able to win in uh, in races like that. Um, but we also saw not just Chris Collins getting reelected here. A couple years earlier, we saw Mike Grimm uh, get reelected in Brooklyn and Staten Island. You know, a lot of these districts are hard, and you really have to spend not just three months at the end of this. You have to spend a year organizing folks and, and getting voters when you have that, you know, once this comes down to redistricting and elected officials picking their voters. Outside of San Diego, if Duncan Hunter's not running against, you know, a family member of the Ayatollah, it, it probably would have been a, a much easier victory. I think, you know, McMurray had a, an opportunity there without a doubt uh let's go to the republican line and uh tom do you have anything else tom in buffalo all right all right tom thank you for your call let's go to the republican line and jim uh jim you're on uh wpn go ahead hello this is frank oh frank my my bad i got you as jim frank in holland you're on uh, Hardline. hey thank you uh got a question for your guest i mean what is he going to recommend as far as political strategy, when you're going up against, you know, like an Erie County Republican chair uh, superhero uh, like Nick Langworthy, I mean, with all of his uh, huge wins, I mean, even for his own family, how do you plan and strategize to win with all of his success in the Erie County? All right, Jim, or I should say, Frank, thank you for the call. Uh, well, I guess what era are we talking about? The, the last three years? I don't know what wins we would call superhero status, but he, you know, he's a name. He's a, I, I would say he's a more established name than Zellner on the Erie County side. But I don't know if the Democrats have had a tough time going up against the Erie County machine. Look, I, I think, uh, you know, you've seen the last few countywide races. You saw the sheriff reelected. You saw uh, a, a Democrat elected as a Republican to the county clerk. Um, previously, you had a county clerk elected, you know, controller. You know, we have seen some Republican successes in Erie County. At the same time, we've seen them um, lose the uh, lose the county ledge. We, you know, county executive race. We saw Democrats pick up two assembly seats here in Erie County, which is frankly a, a pretty big deal. Um, and so, I, I, you know, again, not taking anything away from Chairman Langworthy, he's done a good job uh, with what he's got. But I think you look at this as individual races, right? And it comes down to recruiting good candidates. And I think in a number of those races. Democrats absolutely failed to do that. 
right? Mickey Kearns is likable, uh, has a record, and um, had a lot of crossover appeal. Um, you know, against the sheriff, uh, they ran somebody who's a very nice guy who years ago had a strong record in law enforcement, but was 20 years out from that and and had some uh, also legal issues uh, around the NBA and whatever that was. So I, I think a lot of this comes down to recruiting good candidates, running them, less the chairman and more about the candidates. Uh, well, I think uh, you want to wrap this up, uh, Jacob. Just wanted to, to thank our guest for, for being with us in the studio, Absolutely. and uh, thank you for sharing your expertise. Bitten by the Tiger is the book. Uh, you can see him, uh, uh, our guest, uh, at the U.S. Senate and other <laughs> Democratic races across the uh, fruited plate. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.